Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the home of both Blackwater and Amway. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Greetings. This week, we're going to take a look at morality. Of course, one of the leading moral minds in our country is the doctor, Reverend James Dobson. And Dobson recently came out with a bit of bad news for himself. This is the author of The Strong-Willed Child about spanking and... Yeah, yeah, and how to, how to keep your boy from growing up gay and to fix him if he he does which which uh i believe one of those formulas was to take showers with your young it, boy it is <laughs> uh, i have a copy of his book yes one one thing it, to keep him from turning gay is to take showers with your son. I was teaching a class one time, and I, I was calling up on the projector, the strong-willed child. So I had the website projecting behind me about the Dobson, you know, the focus on the family. And so I entered strong-willed because I couldn't remember the title. Mm-hmm. And there was like a whole ranking of strong-willed child was first. Then there's the strong-willed wife. Oh. And it said things like – and the first like blurb was, there's freedom to be found in submission. <laughs> <laughs> that was in their bookstore, you know. And Thank I was, you, Big Brother. That went over well with the ladies in the in the classroom. I too. can imagine so. It, now, does he suggest showering together as a part of uh, Not, that as well? I think that would be a fine suggestion for marriages. I I agree. You save water, and anyway. But the Reverend Doctor Dobson has had some bad news. Yes, yeah, supposedly, supposedly Dobson has conceded that the far right has lost the culture war. And to think we are, we already did our episode about good news. This is from the Think Progress article. Dobson concedes that far right has lost the culture war. In his farewell address to the staff of Focus on the Family, James Dobson conceded that the evangelical conservatives have lost most of the recent so-called culture war battles. A direct quote from Dobson in his speech is, the battles we fought in the 80s now, we were victorious in many of those conflicts with the culture, trying to defend righteousness, trying to defend the unborn child, trying to preserve the dignity of the family and a definition of marriage. We fought all of those battles, but really it was a holding action. We made a lot of progress through the 80s, but when we turned into the 90s and the Internet came along and a new president came along. (laughs) So the Internet and Bill Clinton. Oh, it it wasn't George Bush Sr.? Yeah. Uh, All of that went away, and now we are absolutely awash in evil. And we are right now in the most discouraging period of that long conflict. Humanly speaking, we can say that we have lost all of those battles. But God is in control, and we're not going to give up now, right? If God is in control, it seems like he's on our side, doesn't it? (laughs) 
it, no, it said Dobson's farewell address. What was he's, he? He's stepping down from being the official, like the the director. He'll still do something. Still do like, figurehead. Yeah. His, his radio show. I think he's stuff. still doing the radio show and everything. So most people won't notice any difference with right. Dobson stepping. But, but down. as far as the actual running of the the business goes, he's he's stepping out. They're afraid that if he continues to be the leader of this, uh, when when he gets too old to do it, it'll create a vacuum. There's no and, one to take and, over, which is yeah. true of a Power lot struggle, of sure. a Shakespearean uh, series of assassinations and uh, yes, absolutely. Stabbings. He's like King Duncan. Steve Bennon of Political Animal in the Washington Monthly pointed out that uh, whether or not James Dobson and his followers do give up, all the evidence does suggest they are right. Uh, <laughs> Quoting that article, he says, The culture war is all but over, and far-right evangelicals have precious little to show for their efforts. After about three decades of fighting, the culture warriors are hard-pressed to point to any progress at all. Uh, he, for his evidence, he cites anti-gay uh, feelings are not only waning, uh, but four states now allow gay marriage. Abortion is still legal, and a majority of Americans are still pro-choice. School prayer isn't even on the political world's radar screen anymore. And pornography is not only a multi-billion industry, it's more accessible than ever. He also mentions, of course, the single fastest growing segment of the American spiritual landscape is non-believers and those with no religious identification. Woohoo! Wow, even he couldn't deny the survey data. I, I think it's actually time that we step down. I think we've done what we set out to do and uh, it's pretty much over, we right? We should do an episode on that sometime. Like what would we do if – our world was you if, know, the way that we wanted it to be. What would we do? But you don't really think that, do you, Dave? No, I, I, I don't. And I, I think I don't this... believe for an instant that the culture war is all but over. I, no. I don't see where they, they're getting that, especially given in the past couple of months since Obama has been elected. No, there's going to be how a backlash. Just, how just exactly. absolutely crazy the religious right and and just the far right in general. The storm clouds are gathering, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> a storm is coming. Yeah, the tea parties. Oh, my God. Uh, by the way, I did celebrate by teabagging this weekend. But the... <laughs> uh, OK. I thought we could go one show at least. No, no, no. I, I enjoy like tea. Really. I was hanging out with my English friends. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, I'm, sure you were, uh, yeah. I'm sure you were teabagging. I, I think somebody English else though pointed friend. out, I don't know if it was, was P.Z. Myers, but somebody was like, you know, during the uh, year ago or a few years ago, it was all the liberals who protested the war or torture yes. or unpatriotic. But if you're in Texas and you threaten to secede, yeah. that's perfectly exactly. you know, that's Chuck Norris. exercising your rights. That's and... not unpatriotic. If you protest torture, you're unpatriotic. No, and this just – this smacks of more of the Christian – Woe is us. We're so oppressed. Well, one point I've always tried to get across to people is that the persecution complex that at least some fundamentalists have, it's never been about whether or not that is an actual reality or not. It's its kind of a right. doctrine of the faith. Exactly. Jesus said they will persecute you the way they persecuted me. Mm -hmm. And so many Christians are prompted by their holy texts to look and find persecution wherever they can. And they maintain that over the past, you know, two administrations, they were constituted 75 percent of the country and had all the arms of government and still managed to simultaneously claim that they were on a besieged minority. And exactly. And I think more than anything, the point of Dobson's speech here was to fire up his constituents. That, that's true. I mean, this was not it's to say let's give up. It's a concession, up. but yep. it's not. It, it's a rallying cry for the religious right to step up their efforts. But I, I love the hyperbole. Um, we are now in the most discouraging period of that long conflict. 
we are absolutely awash in evil. You know, the, <laughs> the way I look at it, evil. yeah, the way I look at it is that we have become more moral as a society yes. by having more tolerant views towards homosexuals, right. by, you know, increasing women's liberty through, you know, allowing them reproductive rights. Um, by keeping church and state separate. They view, you know, see, they view those as immoral, and that's the Washington morality. But the key is, even if you agree with their definitions of immorality, if you look at all the like societal indicators of like you know murder, all the major crimes, uh, you know the um, things like uh, teenage pregnancies and, and abortions, all those have gone down. Right. Since mm-hmm. the, like the seventies right. and eighties, divorce, those sort of things has plateaued and went down. So even using their measures of morality and not ours. Actually, we're a much more moral society than what we've been. Well, and and let's keep in mind that Dobson is the same person who, after Obama was elected, uh, suggested that the Obama election was similar to the uh, Nazi bombing of England. In, in what way? Uh, yeah, yeah, the, 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 the the, yeah, that that uh, that we're under siege, and this oh. is like it's like the Blitz. And he's Churchill. Yeah, apparently. I have nothing to offer you except. Blood, sweat, toil, and tears. Well, moving on, uh, I guess a lot of this does come down to different conceptions of what morality is. And there was a great illustration of this that came to my attention via the website godandscience.org. Uh, I'm sure they're equally weighted in this website. No, godandscience.org is a it's an apologetics website. On that website, you can find the article, Atheism Doesn't Lead to Immoral Behavior, or Does It? Dun, dun, dun. By Rich Deem. Uh, Rich Deem points out that while biblical teachings emphasize values such as honesty, love, forgiveness, sexual fidelity, patience, etc., many of these values are not emphasized in the social circles dominated by atheists. Ooh. Where he gets that data, I don't know. He says, do these teachings influence moral behavior? And he quotes a study done uh, in May of 2008 by the Barna Group, which we've discussed before is a Christian polling group. Um, that doesn't necessarily discredit their information. A lot of times Barna um, does decent statistical work. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're most easily criticized in their interpretations of that work, but that doesn't mean that their, their polling is done inaccurately or anything else. This was a random sample of 1,003 adults. People were asked whether or not they participate in a list of morally questionable behaviors. And the results show atheists versus evangelical Christians have nearly five times the frequency of these different immoral or morally questionable behaviors. So what are those behaviors? Viewing pornography is at the top of the list with uh, 12% of evangelicals saying they do and uh, 50% reporting that they at some time have viewed pornography. 50% of atheists. Yes. Using profanity in public, 16% of evangelicals versus 60% of atheists. Gambling, 2% of evangelicals, no data for atheists. Gossiping. 4% 4% of evangelicals, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Have you ever spent time in a church? Oh, my God. I guess it's what they uh, – it depends on what your definition of gossip That's is. That's right. If, if it's intended to help 
the community and help the person being gossiped about. It's not gossip. My mother used to do a running commentary on people as they headed up to the communion line. Oh, <laughs> there she is. She got divorced, I heard. <laughs> 34% of atheists admit to gossiping. Sex with a non-spouse, 3% of evangelicals, um, which I that we'll have to talk about whether or not that could actually be possible with their very high divorce rates. Right. But, um, uh, no data for atheists there. Retaliation, no data for evangelicals, but atheists have 11 percent. We um, like our vengeance. Yeah, for, for such a strong statement uh, that they're making with this study, it, it's amazing how many of the gaps, how many gaps there are in the data. It, how does how does that happen? How is it that they don't have uh, data on how many atheists have sex with a non-spouse? I don't know. Or... The article author Rich Deem said he contacted Barna trying to get those absent data and mm-hmm. and Barna never replied. Uh, huh. So drunkenness, uh, 0.5% of evangelicals and 33% of atheists. Here's this was this was the one I loved. Lying. 1% of evangelicals <laughs> admitted to lying and 99% lied about it. One of those categories. No, I never lie. Absolutely. And, and no data for atheists. Yeah, no data for atheists. I can't online. determine whether I've lied or not because yeah. I'm an agnostic. So. <laughs> That's right. So the average is uh, – Average. Yeah, the average is – Yeah, <laughs> as if is this is useful for anything. Category, uh, the box yeah. score of – 6% of evangelicals engage in these morally questionable behaviors 29% of atheists. Okay, so the problems with this Can I can yes. I be released from the gate now? Please, please? Yes, Luke. Okay, this is the bar these are Barna surveys. Yes. Yeah. So they're off phone surveys or things like where they call people up. Obviously, you know, be, be above everything else, self-report data on immoral behavior is going to be notoriously unreliable. I mean, when you somebody comes at you with a survey, uh, th- that this is why, you know, Nobody, even in social sciences anymore, gives any credence to surveys of things that have any type of social desirability problems where right. you might not want to look bad. And in this case, particularly with the holier-than-thou effect. That is, sure. if you think that you are more moral, you're going to then forget or have memory lapse. There's going to be biases in reporting, and somebody who's more blunt, for example, let's say are an atheist or something, is going to be, yeah, maybe I did that. So self-reports... Are, right. Are An atheist is much more likely to admit to viewing pornography because they maybe don't view it as as morally questionable, whereas an evangelical is going to be quick to say, no, 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 no of course not, never. I mean, if you look at the, like, cheating and honesty, I think they mentioned in his survey, like, you know, this is, um, like, lying. Uh, if you look at the gap between self-report type research, stuff back then, you know, 40, 50 years ago that, that used to just rely on this sort of self-report, right. uh, there was, a, in fact, religious people do self-report that they cheat less. But when you look at the actual studies more recently where they do behavioral comparisons where like clandestine observation or mm-hmm. where they can double check like in a classroom environment, they can check whether you're docking or giving yourself points, there's no difference. Uh, so clearly when you have even something like that, like on cheating or honesty, there's a gap between religious people self-report more, more honesty, but actually on, on behaviors, there's no difference. Right. We saw that uh, several episodes when, when you talked about the research on retaliation. That's the and, other one, yeah. Which I thought was mm-hmm. funny because retaliation was in this list and it was one of those where the evangelicals had a question mark. But when we talked about retaliation, it wasn't a measure of self-report. It oh. was actually self-report correlated with their actual behaviors. That's right. And those people who self-reported, correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, self-reported that they would 
retaliate less, that they were more forgiving. Uh, if you coupled that with strong religious yeah. belief, they actually delivered more retaliation yeah. in, in the laboratory tests. Yeah, that was the – we talked about like vengeful study where people had an opportunity to like shock other people in the lab who pissed them off. That was the one by Greer. Yeah, right. and so the more intrinsically religious you were, the less you self-reported vengeance. So in effect, again, people have a holier than thou. No, I would never do that. Mm-hmm. I'm not a vengeful person. Sure. But when you look at things like church donations and stuff, that correlates with zapping people more in the lab. And it was the, the hippie non-religious people that actually were more modest in their self-report. Yeah, maybe I am sometimes vengeful, whatever. Uh, and and they actually zap people less in the lab. Right. So there's a direct, you know, in all this research, there's a direct relationship often with blind spots. If you have a moral, if you think that you're immune to something, that's bad news. You're better off as somebody who actually admits that they are capable of something rather than somebody who says, I could never do that. Sure. And, and one of the other uh, potential issues with this study that, that came to mind right away for me is they, they had a sample size of uh, 1,003 adults. How many of those were atheists? How many of those were evangelicals? If it Chances was a general are, population, yeah. It was a very smaller percentage of, of atheists, so you only need a handful of atheists to say, yeah, I watch porn for that to percentage to shoot up. Yeah, and uh, uh, as we uh, talked about before in the show with my, with other things that show a curvilinear relationship, the people that you have to worry about in many cases are not the stone-cold atheists but the Weekly religious Those Christians. wishy-washy. Yeah. But they have the, they're the ones with the higher rates of lots of behavior. The other thing with this one, though, is if you look at all those categories that Jeremy just read off, that's a pretty selective yeah. spectrum oh, of yeah. moral behaviors. You know, like, yes, cheating in spouses or pornography, but I would argue even more immoral than that would be statistics on divorce, spouse abuse, child abuse, you know, a sympathy right. to victims of violence. In all those categories, religious people are worse off than non-religious people, mm-hmm. as we've talked about before. So they stack the deck with the moral behaviors that they view as being the ones that are most important. So there's a question as to whether or not these attitudes should really top the list as far as those morally questionable behaviors. Who says gambling is immoral? Well, yeah, that's what I was going down this list and I was trying to think, you know, to what degree do I find these things immoral? Mm -hmm. I think retaliation I I find pretty high up there uh, as being immoral. I think lying, um, yeah. Depending on the circumstances, it's very dependent on the circumstances. Uh, But things like drunkenness, well, you know, uh, my answer to that is going to be more qualified. I mean, what yeah. kind of drunkenness? Are we getting behind the wheel? Are we going right. home and smacking around the wife and kids? If if that's not a problem and somebody's just getting intoxicated, it also doesn't talk about frequency. Right. Like how often does one get drunk? Um, same with gossiping. Uh, well, it's part of the human species. We, right. we talk an awful lot about Things that are not immediately in our surroundings. Yeah, yeah. A lot of social maneuvering and stuff. Um, And it's unrealistic to me to expect people not to gossip. I I do think it can have moral problems associated with it. But really, is that going to top my list of immoral behaviors? Profanity in public. Yeah, I love swearing. What? It'll be bleeped, but with just a little bit of (laughs) so they know what I've been saying. I mean, really, is profanity that bad of a thing? You can use profanity, which sounds on the outside as being something that's that's, you know, horrible. But aren't kinder sounding words that that are nevertheless hateful? Aren't those more pernicious? I mean, when you when you're judging people and and 
saying that they're that they're you know morally worthy of hell and stuff. Right. You could say that with a smile and soft language. To me, that's far more offensive and damaging language than just an F you now and then. I would much rather hear someone dropping an F-bomb on television than watching a group of people talking about how the storm of gay marriage is coming and it's going to ruin uh, all moral... Yeah, and a nice polished uh, yeah. TV ad like I, I'd rather just hear someone recently. say, you know... See, but I, the people that I know, like in my church when I was a religious person, wouldn't have ranked them that way. They would say right. that if Hamlet... Would have contained f bombs. They would have said it's less artistic than a Hallmark Hall of Fame sort of thing, yeah. just because the f bomb. And that's actually a point that this author of Rich Deem and his uh, webpage makes. He actually mentions the work that we talked about before by Jonathan Haidt, which shows the different rankings of liberals and conservatives of what constitutes morality, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is a, a good scientific piece of work. But the conclusion that he draws is very different. But it's to, directly to what we're talking about, and that is what things do liberals and conservatives differentially weight in regards to what when they think of something as moral or not. So. I think if you guys remember when we talked about before, there's like five general areas of morality uh, um, with fairness and harmfulness being the two that liberals rank. Right. Yeah. right. Liberals uh, rank those very, very high. So in other words, conservatives if, were much less. Yeah. And so if, if something is fair to everybody and not harmful, then then uh, then nothing else. You know, a liberal would be like, do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else and it's fair. Whereas conservatives also include, though, they water down the fairness and harmfulness and add in-group allegiance Authority, allegiance, uh, you know, obedience, and then purity. And this author of the webpage said yeah. um, that's what's worrying. Since most atheists tend to be more politically liberal, it's likely that their political perspective explains their lack of emphasis on personal purity found in the Barna study. And I would actually agree with them in, in that, that, yes, uh, that things like we just talked about, atheists wouldn't consider th- profanity and things like that, purity-type things as being the well, hallmark of morality. Right, right. And I, I mean things like viewing pornography. I can't say that there's anything morally wrong about viewing pornography. You'd um, have to make a utilitarian argument. Where is the pornography coming right, from? And, you know, yeah. is, it, is it abusive to any of the women who are in it? But if it's a completely voluntary thing, nobody's forced into it, then – and again, of course, you get into the whole definition of pornography. Right, exactly. Uh, to, some, to some Christians, pornography <laughs> is, uh, you know, people in bikinis right. type of stuff. I mean – Well, um, my reaction to this is actually using a, his own argument against him and that is let's concede that liberals weight those two things and don't care about authority and, and purity and sure. things like that. I'll take it. That means that, that conservatives downplay whether something is harmful or fair or not in regards to whether they're obedience to obey authority or whether it's purity. So that really means that, it, you know, I would make an argument that, uh, you know, a liberal is going to care more about a situation involving societal discrimination. Yes. And the data pl- shows this out. Outgroup members, minority rights, whereas a conservative would allow something harmful if it, in fact, uh, didn't offend their sense of obedience to authority or purity. So I'm willing to – whoever this guy is, Rich Deem, let's have that mm-hmm. debate sure. as to what, whether something's really immoral or not simply because it's – it violates your sense of propriety or allegiance to authority. Right. Yeah. Let's have that debate. As a real quick clarification, on even on the very conservative end of that scale, conservatives ranked harm and fairness very near the top. What well, was all in the pack with the I other one? I think purity though. was above harm, uh, but hmm. fairness was still ranked near the top. So, sure. but but yeah, it's 
it's clear that the the highest rankings on there, as far as regard to harm or fairness, were definitely on the far liberal side. So, and w- this this though is in accordance actually with other research that shows that conservatives value a lot more things like traditionalism and conformity to society above things like, uh, for example, getting along with other people and ecumenical type things. Where liberal religious people, for example, value ethics of caring more than conservatives do. So I think that you know, in regards to this guy's statistics, um, that that uh, he's he's actually correct in some of his things, but I think that the implications are more damning to the morality of right. conservatives I, than they are. I would of say he is liberals. he is maybe reading some accurate conclusions. He's just he's coming up with the with the wrong answers there. And one last question about about this the stats here. Sex with non-spouse, does that mean sex outside the marriage or does that mean premarital sex, anything like that? Because – I think it's – I took it as I outside that the was, marriage. Yeah, I, I took that as adulterous. But because, I mean, sex with non-spouse, I see no moral problem with having sex with a consensual adult who is not your spouse so long as you are not in a um, monogamous relationship as well. Yeah, so, there's a lot of ambiguity in how that one is phrased that you could see coming in. Uh, Speaking of ambiguity, there's another study that Rich Dean brings up. This guy's busy. Yep. This one is by University of Lethbridge in Canada, uh, Professor Reginald Bibby. That's a great name. Yeah, I said that right. Bibby. Dean and Bibby. This is supposed to measure moral values. They state different moral values and then they ask which of these values are considered to be very important. And then they rank the percentages of theists and atheists that rank these values as being, quote, very important. So the list is honesty, kindness, family life, being loved, friendship, courtesy, concern for others, forgiveness, politeness, friendliness, patience, generosity, and in all categories, the atheists um, score lower than the theists as considering those values to be very important. Keep in mind the this closest, was a poll taken of Canadians. Yes, so that may uh, that yes. may change. The closest one was uh, honesty. 94% of theists claim that honesty is very important as a value whereas 89% of atheists did. So it was very close, but in some of them there's, you know, quite a gap. Forgiveness, for example, is 84% of theists rank that very important, whereas only 52% of atheists do. Uh, Patience, 72% of theists rank that very important. Atheists, only 39. So what does this tell us? Does this tell us about, you know, maybe the rise of atheism is bringing down respect for different social values? That's what Bibby seems to think. He said in an article, Social Virtues Linked to Faith by Charles Lewis of the National Post, he said, to the extent that Canadians are saying goodbye to God, we may find that we pay a significant social price. I'm sorry, before we even do anything else, just the fact that Canadians are, are going to be viewed as being a, a harbinger of doom for the United States <laughs> in regards to societal things like violence and yeah. politeness, oh my God. <laughs> you know, what, what would you rather be sharing a, a seat next to an airplane? Somebody from Brooklyn or a guy from from Ottawa? I mean, <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, I good got you a drink right here. Sorry, Canadians, you got nothing on us Americans when it comes to savagery. 
<laughs> but anyway, the same, all the same. You know, thing it is, is too cold up there to go out and murder people all the time. You just need to have a beer, eh? You dropped your cookie. Um, although all the things that we said about the previous study still apply here in regards to self-report, but just to be a stat sure. nerd for a minute, you notice that they rank it in terms of percent, saying this is very important. Yes. So there's no trade-off there. I could say everything's 199, 89. That was my question. And yeah. all the and all the scores that the the theists in one column were higher in the percentages than the atheists. And so uh, there's no price to pay for like preferentially ranking something. This is all percentage of very important. I could just go through and mark everything very important. Right. Other studies that are more statistically reliable values do things like rank ordering. That is, if you had to make a trade-off between honesty and and niceness or whatever like that. Right. And, and there you see where the, that's what distinguishes people in good surveys or not is that what they rank as being more important, not just saying percentage of everything is more important because obviously, again, if you're holier than thou, you're going to just mark a nine through everything. You're going to say everything's morally important to me. Yeah, the that's article, not valid. The article I was surprised actually uh, interviews uh, Justin Trottier. Uh, oh, hey. From, yeah, we know. I we know, know and love him. Justin. Yeah. Yeah. From Center for Inquiry uh, Ontario, our Canadian friends up there. Actually, I believe now he's with uh, CFI Transnational as their campus coordinator or, or oh, something. Oh, really? He's, yeah, he's going up in the world. He is. Oh, yeah. He's, but he, he's a cool guy. He did form – he started a group at his college and then – um, was he became, the one that got beat up? He did. He was actually attacked when he was uh, posting flyers one time. And this yeah. is in Canada. Yeah. But yeah, he, he parlayed his campus group into a CFI. CFI Ontario? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. CFI Toronto? Anyway, yeah, he, uh, Justin, Justin's a great guy and he's a good one to have on our side for sure. Yeah, well, he, uh, he brings up in, in response to this, he says, uh, religion tends to be very polarizing. So religious people always feel very passionate about those values. They always feel, quote, very strongly. Religion always does this black and white thing. An atheist is a lot more temperate, a bit more hesitant. An atheist might be more nuanced in his or her thinking, which, you know, is exactly the way I feel about this. If I was given this survey, you know, if you ask me how important politeness would be, I'm going to say it's important. But I'm not going to rank it as very, very important. important. Yeah. I'm not going to give it five stars. I might give it three or four because I think there's times where politeness uh, as a moral necessity needs to be suspended uh, in favor what of the truth. What do you mean by politeness? You know, I mean uh, uh, Penn and Teller on their television show uh, whose title we can't say here did an episode on manners and manners are considered polite but manners are ridiculous. Manners are BS. So uh, – I would say politeness is is secondary to your right to the truth. Yeah, friendliness goes along with that. Yeah, right. I mean, your your data, Luke, on the uh, profiles of the godless explained maybe a, a psychological reason why this might be the case, and that is that a lot of a lot of atheists rank low on the whole likability quality. What again was the likability quality? Agreeableness. Okay, sorry. Agreeableness means willingness to uh, like basically subsume your own kind of uh, – to, to get along with other people that you kind of uh, are overly nice and, and, and say – as opposed to being uh, contradictory, for example, or, or distrustful of people. And so, yeah, the religious people did come out uh, higher than that than the non-religious. You know, but again, the, the, the problem I have with this guy's survey things uh, – the, the stats that he cites is – you know, like he says, uh, you know, one of his quotes is, what really concerns me is that only half of atheists think that forgiveness is very important. 
Now, I think Trottier is actually giving away too much in this one. Uh, again, the problem is with the other one, and that is, is that there's a gap between people's self-report and what they would actually do in a situation. And when you look at sure. behavioral or empirical studies, uh, the more religious you are, the more you are likely to say that you're forgiving. But when you do like lab-type situations where you don't know you're being observed, not, there's no difference or they're even less forgiving. There's even some interesting studies where they prime people. This is similar to what we talked about in the aggression one. When they prime people with some biblical values like eye for an eye, they're actually yeah. more, uh, they're more vindictive than, than, than when you prime things like turn the other cheek. So religion itself is not consistent. If you're like an authoritarian in your very Old Testament, you're less forgiving mm-hmm. in, in situations if you view the other person as, as deserving it. And that's the other key for a lot of this stuff is all moral values are rationalized. If there's anything that, that you could subsume under all psychology under, it would be people do what they want to do, and then they find a way to rationalize it intellectually after the fact. So if uh, what happens with a lot of religious people in these types of situations is that they say, well, that wasn't vengeance. It's just a consequence of his behavior. Right. Or, you know, I'm just delivering God's judgment. And they, they've, they behave nastily to somebody and they just rationalize it by saying, oh, that wasn't really that category. It's not that I'm unforgiving. It's just that I'm giving them, you know, uh, I'm delivering God's message or something like that to this gay person. You know, it's not that I'm not forgiving of him. So a lot of this stuff is is th- what category you're thinking of. When well, somebody comes at you with a survey and says, Dave, are you a forgiving person? You know, you're probably going to call up a certain amount of scenarios in your mind. But sure. the more religious you are, the more likely you're going to have that kind of polished, holier-than-thou effect. Yes, I'm so forgiving. Yes, Jesus says to forgive. And therefore, so therefore I am. Yep. I must be because I'm a Christian, uh, whereas the atheists probably have a little bit more honesty in regards mm-hmm. to things like that. Um, when I was reading this article— it happened to be right after I got done listening to a lecture on Nietzsche. And, uh, Nietzsche so, is peachy. So please forgive me for some of the things I'm about to say next if they seem a little uh, over the top. But uh, I was reading uh, part of Genealogy of Morals and listening to a lecture that went along with it. And in it, Nietzsche makes a point about how these Christian values such as love – can seem quite distorted when you take in the full picture. And, uh, and I'm going to do a, a, a paraphrase. I can't remember the exact quote, but he made some sort of comment as uh, Dante may have made a mistake when he put above, above the entrance to hell the inscription, I too was created by eternal love. Uh, he said, you know, it might be better to put the, uh, the inscription above the gates of paradise I, too, was created by eternal hate. And then he says Mm. something to the effect of uh, if it's appropriate to place a truth above the gateway to a lie. You know, read Nietzsche. First of all, it it reminded me of the fact that these new angry atheists that everybody are pointing out to, I'm sorry, Dawkins, Harris, Dennett, Hitchens, none of these guys – None of these guys come even close to what they you're going to find in a Thomas Paine yeah. or yeah or and a Thomas Paine wasn't even an atheist yeah I so it's it's that was amusing but but second of all I was thinking about that you have to remember that for example a Christian who believes in hell mm-hmm. which I think would be most Christians I don't I don't have the data in front of me to confirm that but I would certainly be very, Christian doctrine teaches yes teaches I would be very surprised if there was a large proportion of Christians that didn't believe in hell think of how you have to rationalize that the idea of the most holy righteous perfectly loving being the supreme standard of goodness 
has sent an, a majority of human beings to spend an eternity, never ending, in the most brutal anguish torment imaginable. And yet that is that I, that picture is consistent with the idea of love in Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not torture like Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> that's not although waterboarding is serious business. This is a whole other level above that sort of thing. Right. And and so to me it's it's sometimes very hard for me to take seriously this notion of Christian love. If if they're afraid that atheists value this less in society and that this is going to somehow, you know, shake the moral foundations of our culture, you know, my recommendation then is to just examine both groups more closely about what they actually believe is entailed by those virtues of love, forgiveness, uh, etc. Well, a lot of my research that I've talked about before regarding that just world belief, the belief that, that people get what they deserve right. and how it's stronger and high fundamentals, people is relevant to that because that's one of my hypotheses with the whole victim blaming thing is that if you believe that the world that God is totally just and I also accept that you're going to go to hell if I think that you're an atheist and a repentant one you're going to burn mm-hmm. in hell sure. there's a certain amount of dissonance that, that raises like well if you're going to be tortured for eternity I conclude and the world is just I have to conclude that you must deserve it you've got to come to and me. that has consequences in regards to how you treat people you, you basically shape, shake the dust off of your sandals and, and say you're you're on the other you're an other now because you're going to spend eternity in hell and and you deserve whatever you get. That has consequences. And you see that in their approach to not only atheists but homosexuals, no. to it's Muslims, to, to you know. It's easier to dehumanize somebody when you think that that's justified by your uh, worldview. Right. Now, in fairness, though, I know a lot of Christians do struggle with that as far as the cognitive dissonance goes. I think most of the ones who who have any intellectual honesty do. Yeah, they do struggle with how do we deal with these passages in the Old Testament, uh, especially, but doctrines like hell, um, which seem to go against what I think normal, properly functioning moral sense would tell us is mm-hmm. that that's wrong that it would be wrong to torture somebody for eternity and that sort of thing. How could a loving God send people to hell? And so that's what we're going to discuss on this week's Counter Apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for Counter Apologetics. So today, on today's Counter Apologetics, we're going to visit an old friend, Dr. William Lane Craig. Yay! Yay. Host of the Reasonable Faith podcast. Yes, the Bizarro World version of our podcast. I wish I had like a doppelganger on a show that I could meet who's like an opposite world me. <laughs> well, there you go. Hello? He's Hello? the opposite of Luke. Yeah, what would that be like? <laughs> Well, it'd be brimming with uh, self-confidence uh, and, and <laughs> in able some to areas, still. and yet no ego in others. And visibly unattractive. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, sure. And stupid. Without <laughs> um, a sense of humor. Me, I'm Luke. And a weaselly little voice. In contrast to my rich baritone. Well, we're going to have a link to this debate on our website, but this is a debate between William Lane Craig and... Dr. Ray Bradley. The argument is, of course, centering around the question, is a loving God consistent with the idea of hell? 
Now, I want to read just a portion of William Lane Craig's opening remarks, and then I'll just summarize the rest of the debate for you. Craig begins by saying, the statement, God is all loving, and some people go to hell, those statements are not explicitly contradictory. So if these two are inconsistent, there must be some hidden assumptions which would serve to bring out the contradiction and make it explicit. And uh, and he goes on to say, uh, he thinks most people are assuming that one, if God is all-powerful, then God can create a world in which everyone freely chooses to give his life to God and is saved. So he doesn't believe that's possible. Uh And second, the assumption is if God is all-loving, then God prefers a world in which everyone freely chooses to give his life to God and be saved. And here's a great little rhetorical move then that Craig makes. He says, now notice both of these assumptions have to be necessarily true in order to prove that God and hell are logically inconsistent. So as long as there's even a possibility that one of these assumptions is false, it's possible that God is all-loving, and yet some people go to hell. Some people, you know, just vast majority of everyone who's ever existed, but yeah, okay, some yeah. people. It's possible that God is all-loving, and yet some people go to hell. Right. So he says, thus the opponent of hell has to shoulder a very heavy burden of proof. Indeed, oh. he has to prove both of these assumptions are necessarily true. Um, So right off the bat, um, Craig is jockeying quite well Mm -hmm. to to put the burden of proof on the other side. It's on you to to prove the imaginary. They have to show that it's a logical necessity that these two are inconsistent. Now, how does Craig argue real quickly that that these are consistent? I'm sure you guys have heard the argument before. Why is hell – how could that be consistent with a loving God? Uh, Uh. Well, most most people say that it's not the loving aspect, but it's consistent with God being just, and that everyone deserves hell. So they would say it's irrelevant to whether He's loving or not. He is, which is kind of funny, but almost bound to. They wouldn't say it that way, mm-hmm. but He has to. He has yeah. no choice. In other words, that we've done it ourselves as a consequence of our free will. And so, since He's an eternally just, in addition to yep. loving God, yeah, so we that have he to go be to hell because uh, that's and that's exactly what Craig yeah. does. Craig says God's mercy and God's loving nature is balanced by His sense of justice. I and, find that well, absurd, that's though, a don't huge cop-out. That, yeah. That's absurd because, let's say, even an imperfect person like me, I could say right now, I don't want anyone to be tortured. So if I was God, I would say everybody, if there is a heaven and a hell, then they would all go to heaven. So even me with all my flaws would say that. So why yeah, can't God and, do right. it? And I thought that was strange. He never went to say why, why the punishment for sin has to be yeah. – an eternity of of torture and hell. God could say he makes the rules, right? He doesn't. He's not bound by anything, right? Why and, is he bound to do that? And then the whole salvation thing becomes becomes uh, screwy because Jesus is making up for the lives of of all of the those who follow him by a bad afternoon, you by, know? by yeah. sacrificing yeah. himself to himself. Right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it just. Wow, this is talk about bizarro world. Yeah, well, Kate, uh, Craig makes some interesting arguments. Craig's Craig first of all evokes free will. Um, now, I hope he defined it very clearly, or our <laughs> listeners will jump oh, on geez, him and tear him again. apart. We're, we're gonna we're gonna stay away from that one. Um, but but essentially, what he's saying is free will creates the context in which God is unable to force people to choose him. See, this is where I have to call shenanigans, and this is an argument I've used and and never heard a a response for. 
an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, a God who can do anything, okay, could create a world where everyone had free will and yet chose to do the right thing. Now, that it doesn't make sense to us logically, but we're talking about an omnipotent God, a God who can do absolutely no, they anything. Say that's, that's the equivalent to making a square circle, that they're, they're by definition contradictory. Not for an omnipotent God. But an for an a human, God yes, I can't make, make a square, square circle. I, I, I is, think that he is could. Tr- that is true. Um, there are, there's a category of things that are that could be true, but uh, and there's things that are just uh, logically contradictory. Yeah, but, most 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 theologians, including William Lane Craig, draw the line uh, of omnipotence at that you know logical possibility. Then, so, so they would exclude what is logically impossible. As it's it's not even though they're it's they're not fair to consider that as a power of God that He could. Or but could everything else have. they're talking about is the logically impossible too. An all loving God who condemns a majority of His creation to hell. Well, you know, and, and we're going to actually spend I mean, some time in the next episode dealing with the attributes of God and just right. how coherent they are. But in in Craig's mind, at least, just to understand where he's coming from, he makes a couple of ser- of assertions. First of all, free will means that God could not possibly force uh, people to choose him. And so um, the ideal world that you mentioned, uh, Craig responds to that argument where people believe, have free will, but they would but choose to use believe. that voluntarily yes. to believe. He says that world would be populated by one person, that is Jesus. Well, what about heaven? Oh, yeah. Well, this See? is this is ultimately where uh, there's, Craig, there's where no free Bradley, will in heaven? where Bradley cuts Craig off, and he does a wonderful job of showing this. Oh, good. There, there's heaven, so heaven would be somewhere where where uh, everyone still has their free will because they're which means there can be sin. But but there's no but there's no evil in that world, and nobody does any exactly. uh, anything wrong. So I guess of, exactly right. Um, so there's a theoretical world. I guess where what they I'm arguing is, arguing for is then why didn't God just create heaven? Yeah, exactly it. And that's how Bradley responds. Bradley mm-hmm. says, by your own admission, there already is a possible world that we could conceive of, heaven, where exactly that is the case. Everybody mm-hmm. it, who is in heaven presumably has free will. They choose to obey God. And therefore, Craig can't make this argument. Now it is inconsistent. They have to concede that heaven exists. They have to concede right. that heaven is indeed like that. Although I'd like love that. to hear uh, that, William Lane Craig admit that heaven doesn't exist. Um, I would encourage our listeners to check out this debate. You, you get a good example of William Lane Craig's sophistry in the question and answer time that mm. follows the, the official now, is debate. Is there video remark. of this or just the transcript? I could only find the transcript. Okay. But the, the link is online. And, and he does actually – he. I think he was going to try to avoid at first saying that heaven is a possible world. Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Bradley, Bradley kind of forces it on him, and then he tries to explain his view. Okay, well, heaven is a possible world, but God is unable to actualize it, he says, in the that way mean? that Bradley— I don't know what that means. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to oh tackle God. that one here. He's talking it's, out of his ass. Yeah, yeah. It's clear that he's been argued into a corner. And uh, in fact, a good portion of the question and answer time, again, a good rhetorical strategy, he he wastes as much time as he can in the beginning talking about some very superficial things mm-hmm. around the debate of course. Uh, that, that he could nail Bradley on. 
uh, and wants to focus most of his energy on that, bleeding off time to avoid well, there's this, the this real, objection. real issue in the room. Well, yeah. the, the other thing, this is the kind of a side thing, but if this is all biblically based, and it doesn't have to be, but uh, the, the, the Bible doesn't, first of all, we've, as we talked about before, it's not entirely consistent with, his, with heaven and hell. Like it changes no. from the Old Testament. Well, yeah. We've talked about that to death. And the other thing is that the whole, all these arguments about free will, where does it ever talk about free will in the Bible in this explicit, specific, You're intellectual right. terms? I yep. mean, are they interested in the Garden of Eden stories about free will? That concept never comes up. It's it, like an, yeah. it's a modern invention. Uh, if you yeah. look at if God you intervenes look at, all the time to take away free will. He changes Pharaoh's mind. He yep. changes all that's, that's the one I was going to bring Saul. up was Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. He but intervenes yet all, God, all over the place. God hardens his heart as well. And that's also the people's objection to all this stuff about why why evil happens and disasters happen is that God doesn't intervene in the world. It's a free will, but He intervenes all the time he in the Bible. He makes disasters happen. He, all he causes of the time. people to yeah. act all the time. They're I mean, puppets look at all the over flood, the place. You know, I don't know. Anyway, that's just my rant. Yeah. Well, I, I just uh, I, I really appreciate the fact that this uh, Bradley fellow stuck it to Craig directly mm. and uh, and did try to show, uh, did take up the burden of proof. You know, it's very dangerous doing that when arguing. I, I, I think I think a good position rhetorically for atheists to make is to keep the burden of proof on the other side as much as right. possible. Because you can't prove a negative. They're the ones that are making the claims. Mm -hmm. And whenever you take the burden of proof on yourself, whenever you step into their game and accept some of their premises to show that one or another part is inconsistent, you do that at considerable risk. You do that very much with one arm tied behind your back. Uh, in a metaphorical sense, arguing. But Bradley, you know, valiantly takes up the cause and, you know, just shows, hey, look, by your own acknowledgement, your assumptions about God are inconsistent. This uh, hell has to necessarily conflict with a God who is all-powerful and all-loving. And I thought it was really funny. I so wish I could have heard the audio or actually watched it to see, you know, what was his body language and mm, everything else. Sure. But William Lane Craig's first reply af after that exchange is to say, uh, well, let me say, I think you certainly grasped the nettle firmly in the sense that you tried to do exactly what I asked you to do. Oh, namely, tried to do. Yeah, yeah. Namely, to furnish a positive proof that, in fact, God and hell are logically inconsistent. So, um, what a condescending. I would have liked to see if there was any sweat on his brow while he was Jeez. making that statement because I'm sure he was quite shocked. I'd like to see when he was hit by that. See if his pants stayed dry during that because that because uh, <laughs> he's a he's a good debater. I mean, the man is is ready and he's uh, you know rhetorically speaking, he knows what he's doing. But as long as he's in in rationalist ter uh, territory, yeah. he, he he tries to make things a matter of logic. You know, straight propositional logic. Once you get outside of that realm, I'm not sure Craig really has all that much rhetorical powers, but I guess I haven't seen him argue outside of that realm. Well, anyways, hell and a loving God, inconsistent. We're going to end up this week with another Stranger Than Fiction. Christian Salt hopes to shake up religiously based sodium chloride market. <laughs> I love that title. Greatest headline ever. Uh, this comes from the AP. Uh, one Joe Godlewski 
has decided to to take a stand against kosher salt. Joe Godlewski has noticed that a lot of TV chefs uh, repeatedly recommend kosher salt in their recipes. What the heck's the matter with Christian salt? <laughs> Godlewski said, sipping a beer in the living room of his home in unincorporated Chesap Town, a Western Maryland mountain community. Um, I love how they capture the <laughs> sipping a beer. The, the can almost see the wood paneling. There's yeah. also a, a photo of, of of Joe on some of these sites, and he looks pretty much exactly how you would expect him to look. He kind of looks like the the jumping to conclusions guy from Office Space. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got it. And uh, his Christian salt, which he's now marketing as an alternative to kosher salt, is available for purchase at www.memphi.net. That's M-E-M-P-H-I.net. I have two questions here. Number yes. one, does he really think the fact that you know chefs use kosher salt a lot or recommend it, does he really think that has anything to do with Judaism or religion or – Well, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but kosher salt is – more coarse. It's it's the size of the grain. Yeah, it's it, it sea draw, salt. It doesn't have anything to do. I, I'm sure to a Jew it does, but to most people using it, it doesn't actually, have anything it, it really to do with even, the fact that it's kosher. I mean, the the idea of kosher salt is that the grains are larger, which helps draws the blood out of the meat, which okay. helps to make the the meat kosher. Okay, okay? I see. it is not, however, blessed by a rabbi as Joe Gottlewski seems to think it is because he has his very own Episcopal priest coming in to bless his okay. Christian salt. That, see, that was going to be my second question is what the hell could possibly make salt Christian? And yeah. it's guaranteed not to lose its saltiness. Oh, oh okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, Gottlewski, a uh, 73-year-old man, um, said that a share of the proceeds from the salt will be donated to Christian charities – but he would not specify how much a portion of, of the proceeds would go to Christian charities or what Christian charities. Well, you got to wait until you know what the demand for Christian salt actually is. It's it's funny because on the um, the website where I found this article, and it's available on a, a, a number of websites, but there was six comments and half of them were, this is a great idea. What a good thing he's doing. And the other half were, this is so stupid. He's – he clearly has no idea what kosher salt means. I imagine they'll probably have this sold next to other Christian food products at the family Christian bookstores like uh, Testaments. Have you ever seen oh, those? Oh, yeah, the Testaments. with yes. little scripture verses inside yeah, yeah. of them. Or, uh... Now, uh, of course, um, we have the, the Jewish response to this. Um, Rabbi Shalom Fishbane. Uh, kosher administrator for the Chicago Rabbinical Council, said that marketing Christian salt as an alternative to kosher salt reflects, at best, ignorance about Jewish dietary laws. He said all salt is inherently kosher because it occurs naturally and requires little or no processing. Certified kosher foods are not blessed by rabbis, says the articles, but examined by them to ensure that the food and its processing conform to the biblical passages regarding food and preparation. Has he uh, has he announced a product name at all? For... Uh, it, it's just called Christian Salt. Just Christian Salt. And it is in um, clear jars of salt with red crosses on them. So a red cross on a white background. He swears it's not anti-Semitic, <laughs> even though it looks like a crusader's flag. Does it have commercials like, you know, what would Jesus choose if he's choosing <laughs> salt? You know, he wouldn't choose Jewish salt. Oh, would he? Ye are the salt of the earth. Use Christian salt. 
I think as atheists now, we're our market is dwindling. What we need to do is do a Gandhi-esque march to the sea to make our own salt. There you and go. And have a civil disobedience <laughs> where you. I don't want any religion in my salt. Well, Ed Godlewski says that this is, you know, this is not against the the Jews at all, but this is quote, this is about keeping Christianity in front of the public so that it doesn't die. I want to keep Christianity on the table, <laughs> in the household, however I can do it. Thank goodness Joe Godlewski came along because otherwise we'd have all just forgotten about Christianity. Now that it's it's flavoring my salmon. Um, I, I will never Dave, Dave, again Dave, forget. You, it's already I – mean, you go to down any cereal aisle, it's a sea of paganism. Lucky Charms. What's that? <laughs> oh, Count witchcraft, Chocula. Count Chocolate. Yeah. It's witchcraft. That's right. Granola. And, it's liberals. And it gets even better though. By the way, not an anti-Semite. Joe Godlewski says that if the salt takes off, he plans an entire line of Christian branded foods including rye bread – Bagels and pickles. He's trying he's, to take the bagels. He's targeting the Jewish market for all these foods. As uh, someone commented on, on the article saying something, what's next? Uh, gefilte fish. Yeah. And <laughs> Christian matzo balls. And coincidentally unleavened bread. <laughs> yes. Um, so the, the, uh, spokespeople from Christian bookstores have said that they probably actually won't end up carrying it in their stores because there's not a very big market for If you're in the food aisle, pass salts. over the kosher products and go to the Christian section. Why not fry your foods in anointing oil? All so, right. We try to keep ourselves stocked, but the fish and loaves miraculously keep reproducing on them. We never have to go back for more. There's a whole thing out there for now, Christian Now, if foods. you put Christian salt in holy water— would you still drown if you drank too much of it? I mean, is, or these are questions not meant to be answered by rational minds, Dave. You're right. Let's not <laughs> let's not venture in there. And that's that's a good point. All right. All right. We're going to leave it there for this week. We will not have a new episode next week since we're all dealing with finals right now. So in two weeks' time, we'll be coming back with another hard-hitting counter-apologetics episode. Yes, we're going to be spending most of our time talking about the intelligibility of God and his attributes. So counter-apologetics junkies, you won't want to miss that. We figured rather than uh, trying to squeeze out a half-assed episode, we would uh, give it another week and put together one that was really worth listening to. Yeah, yeah. We I've noticed I've noticed uh, on PZ's blog uh, with our recent PZ episode and elsewhere, people have been complaining about uh, how infrequently we've been releasing things. Uh, I, I'm really glad that we have listeners that, uh, that follow care the that show much. closely yeah, enough that great. that's going to bother them when we don't come out with a release. Yeah, try um, ris- listening to Radio Lab, okay. <laughs> oh, we're going to do a five-minute podcast this week. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so I guess I, I yeah. know the frustration on, on the other end, too. But uh, it's the end of the semester, and with that, there's always going to be a lot of uh, a lot of extra work for us to do. Hopefully, you know, as summer come approaches, we're going to come back with some pretty hard-hitting episodes. Yeah, it's been a busy semester for us all, so thanks for we bearing a, with us. We got an interview with Daniel Dennett coming up. That's right. We have our Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll episode right around the corner for people who have been asking, when the heck are you going to do the... Since we've been talking about that for a year and a half, Atheists and the media. Yep, that's yep. coming around the corner. So uh, By the way, please do stay tuned and keep on telling other people about Reasonable Doubts. And if you have good suggestions for uh, atheist music, please send them our way, doubtcast at gmail.com. Until next time. 
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 